Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. Matt Baum joins us today. He is a Seattle-based writer, podcaster, and YouTuber. He focuses on how pop culture and big entertainment have shaped the lives of queer people and straight society as well. His new book, Hi Honey, I'm Homo, focuses specifically on TV comedy, sitcoms, and specials. From Bewitched and All in the Family to Friends and Will and Grace and beyond, he argues that these shows have played an outsized role in the queering of American culture by beaming their way into people's living rooms and our brains. Matt Baum, welcome to Think Out Loud. Thanks so much for having me. A real pleasure. Um, You start your book in the 1960s, and we'll talk about Bewitched in just a second, but I want to turn to the time before then. Were there any depictions of queer life, queer people at the very beginning of television? You know, it's kind of like one of those magic eye pictures where you kind of have to squint a little bit Mm. and look at it from the right angle. And you can find, you know, oblique references maybe. Or you can find, um, you know, if you you look at it the right way and you know what to listen for, um, yeah, you know, it might be a joke about Christine Jorgensen, uh, who is a a figure who, you know, we look back and now we call her a a trans pioneer. Um, But there was very, very little. Mostly, if you're going to catch something, it would be um, someone, it would be usually a male comedian in drag, and the joke was, it's a man in a dress, and they're different. They're not like, they're not like regular men, and that's the whole joke. And so it was very clumsy and uh, pretty, I'd say, hurtful comedy up until that point. The first show that I mentioned that you, that you really focus on in the new book is Bewitched, which premiered in 1964. For people who didn't grow up watching it or grew up with its reruns, and those those went into the 80s, mm-hmm. um, can you describe the premise of the show? Yeah, so Bewitched was this great funny show about a woman who is secretly a witch. She comes from a family and a culture of witches, and she falls in love with and marries a mortal. And in the pilot episode, in the first five minutes, he finds out that he's married a witch. And the whole series is about them trying to blend in and be a part of quote-unquote normal society, uh, while she has this tension of loving her family and loving her husband and eventually children, and also not wanting to lose touch with the culture and the people and the world, the magical world that she came from. Um, and so it really reflects a sort of proto-feminism of the time. And, um, you know, the, the uh, you could read it in a lot of different ways, either as a interfaith marriage or a mixed-race marriage, or uh, a lot of folks read this as someone who is hiding a secret about herself as something sort of queer. Well, and you say that for a show about a heterosexual couple, although a mixed one in terms of witch and, and non-witch, <laughs> yeah. that it was a lot gayer than, mm-hmm. than was readily apparent. What do you mean? Yeah, well, and you can see it very early in the series run when uh, characters are talking about their secrecy as witches and whether or not to come out. Uh, there's another beautiful episode where uh, the character Samantha the Witch uh, talks to her uh, daughter who's still a toddler about um, that the world may not be ready for people like us and they don't understand. You're going to have to understand when to use your powers and when not to for your own safety. And so uh, later on, uh, Elizabeth Montgomery, who was the star, was asked if she was aware that this show could be read as an allegory for queer life. And she said, yes, that was on their minds at the time. It was something they were aware of. They couldn't talk about it on the show, but they knew that the show as a, they knew that the show was um, welcoming 
welcoming to people who felt like outsiders or who felt different. And so you could either just you could laugh at all the, the funny, wacky sitcom shenanigans, uh, but you could also read something a little more deep into it and um, feel that it was speaking to you as, as someone who might feel like you don't belong in society. You mentioned um, that there was a scene early on in, in one of the episodes where um, the witches are talking about, you know, why can't we be more public? We actually, we, we have the audio of that. So let's have a listen uh, and then we can keep talking. Mm -hmm. I don't know why we don't simply tell everyone that we're witches and then they'd see what wonderful, nice people we really are. <laughs> you better take out lots of fire insurance first. <laughs> oh, Bertha, they stopped burning us years ago. We have made some progress. Well, not enough. What was the context for, I mean, when this episode would have aired? What, what was going on outside of TV? Oh, yeah, the timing on this episode is honestly astonishing. So in the episode, they're talking about how hurtful stereotypes about witches are. It's Halloween is coming up and, you know, maybe it's time for us to just come out and say who we are. Uh, but in real life, just around this time, maybe like two or three weeks earlier... There had been what's widely regarded as the first public queer protest. Uh, this happened in New York. It happened outside a uh, army recruiting station. And in the episode of Bewitched, the witches decide to have a protest of their own. They have picket signs that say witches are people too and we demand a new image. And then they invade because they're magical beings. They invade the dreams of a executive who wants to use derogatory witch stereotypes and they harass him in his dreams. Well, those picket signs in the episode look almost identical to the picket signs that were held by real-life demonstrators in 1960, I think it was 1966 or 7, outside this recruiting station in Manhattan. And the, the parallels are just so similar. I don't think that um, the writers and showrunners of Bewitched were like, well, there was this queer protest in Manhattan, we better copy them. Uh, I don't think that was their intent. But I think it reflects what was happening in the air at the time, that we're in the middle of the civil rights movement, or the, you know, the, the middle of the beginning of the civil rights movement, and um, a lot of minority groups or marginalized people are speaking up in ways that they hadn't before. And the show is reflecting that, which is amazing for a goofy little sitcom. Hmm. You point out that the secrecy that you're talking about in, in terms of this this couple, um, that that was not at all an outlier in terms of sitcoms around those same years. So on Mr. Ed, a man kept a, a talking horse, a male horse for what it's worth, secret from his wife. On My Favorite Martian, a reporter hid his alien friend. And then there are plenty of other examples, I mean, oh, yeah. including, you know, cars and sort of weirder yes. things. Uh -huh. Why is this? Why was secrecy? And I mean, there's secrecy in Shakespeare. So it's mm -hmm. it's not like it was invented in TV sitcoms in the American 1960s. But why do you think it was such a big theme at this time? Yeah, well, I think part of it is, like you said, it's just a fun little drama engine to have a secret. And, you know, that it's, it's a good premise for a show. But also, I think something that we're seeing around that time is... You know, like I said, uh, marginalized groups speaking out more about themselves. And up until this point, sitcoms and television in general had been very whitewashed. It was nuclear families, almost entirely white people uh, in the suburbs, and of course, heterosexuals. You wouldn't see religious minorities. You certainly wouldn't see people with disabilities. And so television was really not telling the full story. Meanwhile, in real life, we're seeing a lot more people having the courage to speak up and demand more. And it wasn't always safe for them to do so. What was going on in queer circles in particular, or at the time what would have probably been called homophile organizations, was a debate, just like you're seeing in that Bewitched episode, of some people saying, 
why don't we just tell people who we are and then they'll see that we're nice. And then other people saying, are you kidding? They're, they're going to kill us. They're literally, they literally. <laughs> literally kill us. I mean, that's the, the, the burning us is, I mean, it is a, it's a laugh line there, mm-hmm. but um, on another level, on a deeper level, it's not at all funny. No, no. I mean, at the time that this aired, homosexuality was a crime. It was considered a mental illness. Uh, it, certainly, if it came out that you were, for example, arrested in a gay bar raid, which as often happened, uh, that meant losing your job, losing your connection to your family, you know, losing everything. Uh, so, yeah, the stigma was um, unimaginably acute compared to the life that we are very lucky to have today. Let's turn then to the 1970s when television shows started to tackle societal issues of all kinds a, a lot more directly. And I don't, I don't think any comedy did that more famously than, than All in the Family, mm-hmm. which dealt with race and class and war and sexuality yeah. um, as a kind of generational clash uh, with with Archie, the, the bigoted dad, and then sort of countercultural kids. And then his wife, Edith, who was sort of in between, it, it seems, narratively. What kind of queer representation was there on All in the Family? That's another one that was just shocking. And, you know, for some people it was shocking great, and for other people it was shocking horrifying. Uh, but uh, All in the Family really changed television up until this point. Uh, you didn't rock the boat. You didn't talk about the realities of people's lives. And when this show comes on, that's at its heart about an intergenerational conflict, somebody who's living in the past. Those were the days is the theme song of the show. Uh, and his, uh, you know, his goofball meathead uh, daughter and, and um, uh, her husband. Suddenly, you've got this clash that you had just never seen on the television had really never been brave enough to talk about. And at the time, people were, you know, critical of it and saying, like, good grief, these people experience everything. They, they have conversations about war and venereal disease and sexual assault and all this stuff. Uh, Surely, like, why why are you putting all this stuff in there? And Norman Lear, who's the co-creator of the show, was very frank about, like, this is the reality of people's lives. And in particular, they had more queer people than you could ever have expected to see on television before then. In the first season, we find out that one of Archie's uh, friends is gay, and he thinks it's uh, Archie thinks it's all a big joke. He thinks he's kidding around because oh, you can't be gay. You're a football player. You're this big macho guy. You've got a deep voice. You're you're strong. You can't be. You know, he's like uh, that. That can't be the. He calls him a fruit. He says if that's the punch of a fruit, well, uh, and he doesn't believe it. Then later on, we meet um, a character named Beverly LaSalle, uh, who is, uh, according to Norman Lear, a drag queen. Uh, other people can interpret this character as trans or um, or might exist in a category that you know the, the language just didn't exist for at the time. But Beverly becomes a good friend of the family. She recurs in, across three seasons. She gets an amazing character arc. Well, let's let's listen to. Um, I think this is maybe the at the the right around the introduction of yeah. her character. This is when the, the Beverly LaSalle character um, is meeting Edith. Mm-hmm. Let's have a listen. It was foolish of me to work three shows a night for ten weeks straight without a night off. Are you in show business? Yes, I'm a female impersonator. <laughs> Interesting. 
you know, that's smart, too. I mean, who can imitate a female better than a lady? <laughs> I'm afraid you don't understand, Mrs. Bunker. I'm a transvestite. <laughs> You sure fooled me. <laughs> I mean, you ain't got no accent at all. What do you hear in that first long burst of laughter? Mm -hmm. I, I assume that's a live studio audience. Yeah. Maybe it's a laugh track. So, um, I mean, so the character says, no, no, you don't say, I'm, I'm a female impersonator. And then it's, you know, eight seconds of laughing. Yeah. <laughs> what are they laughing about? So there's a lot going on there. One is that earlier in the episode, uh, the audience knows that Archie uh, has given mouth to mouth to this character. And so... Who, who passed out... Who passed his, out in, his, in cab. his cab. Yeah. And so she passed out. He gave her mouth to mouth. And he's bragging about what a hero he is for having saved her life, not realizing that this was... Uh, as she says, a female impersonator or a transvestite, she, using language that we don't really use today. Um, so the audience is laughing about that, knowing now we know something that Archie didn't, and we know something that Archie would be probably horrified if he knew. But also, we're hearing a, a, a knowing laugh from an audience that's been primed for decades at this point to laugh at a man in a dress. Mm -hmm. and so it's you, you do hear both, kind of mm -hmm. punching up at at, uh, at Archie and punching down mm -hmm. at at the queer community. It's happening simultaneously. That is such a great way to describe it. Yeah, and I think what we see over the course of this episode and Beverly's later appearances is uh, a resolution on on which way we're really going to punch. And it becomes clear that this show is tackling bigotry, and it's not going to be another you know Milton Berle style. Uh, isn't it hilarious to see a man in a dress? I should remind folks if you are just tuning in, we are talking right now with Matt Baum. He is a podcast caster and YouTuber, author of the new book, Hi Honey, I'm Homo, sitcoms, specials, and the queering of American culture. You note that one of the really powerful messages that um, that Norman Lear and All in the Family um, took with this is, is simply that this was not a one-off, mm. that, that Beverly LaSalle was not, I mean, she very easily could have been um, a fun character on one episode, but instead she became recurring. C can you give us, I don't think 40 years later we need to worry about spoilers. <laughs> sure. So can you give us a sense for the arc of her character? It's yeah. it's remarkable and and then tragic. Yeah, it's incredible. And, you know, and she easily, it, exactly what you said, could have fallen into that trope, which remained common for many more decades of the one-off gay guest who appears, helps the heterosexuals in some way and then is out of their lives forever. So that, that was a trope. Oh, very much. Yeah, yeah. You might see, you know, like a gay guest or something like that. But it was very rare. You know, shows like Barney Miller would actually bring queer characters back. But most of the time, uh, they did not. Even on shows like Maud. Maud had some gay characters who just appeared once. Anyway, so on All in the Family with Beverly, she comes into their lives. Uh, Archie is stricken once he finally f figures out, once he finds out that this is a drag performer. Um, and then she helps him. Uh, she, he's very embarrassed. And by the end of the episode, uh, she helps him uh, deflect the attention that he has gotten for having given her mouth to mouth. And she uh, essentially lies to protect him and says, oh, no, it was actually somebody else. And so Archie's grateful to have his reputation protected. Uh, obviously, that episode would go very differently, I think, today. But uh, it's still 
it's a it's a beautiful episode, beautifully acted, uh, with, it's, it's really smart. She comes back, Beverly comes back a year later, and they're all happy to see her. She's welcomed into the house, uh, and Archie asks her for a favor, uh, which is he asks her to pose as a um, pose as a, as a as a woman and go on a blind date with one of his friends so he can embarrass his friend. Uh, and again, this is a storyline that we probably wouldn't do today. It falls into the trope of the deceitful transvestite. And, you know, it's something that we now, I think, appreciate as a little more harmful than um, a lot of people would have realized at the time. Um, but Beverly not only protests, and she says that she doesn't want to deceive a stranger uh, and that it's wrong, um, she eventually relents and says, well, okay, if this, is, if this is in good fun and everybody knows what's going on and it's not, you know, we're not going to hurt anybody's feelings here, okay, I'll go along with it. And we see that Beverly is actually the most decent person <laughs> on the show. Mm. Uh, and by the end of it, uh, Archie has so forgotten that he has uh, asked this this person who he thinks is, is a guy in drag at this point. Uh, he's so forgotten uh, that the, the nature of Beverly's character. Uh, he's forgotten he's a bigot. He's in forgotten sense. he's a bigot. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he, he gives her a kiss at the end of the episode. Mm. And the episode ends with his shocked expression, realizing what he's just done. Uh, and so it's, again, another hysterical episode, and it's it's just beautifully, beautifully written. Hmm. Can, if I could say, we, before we even get to the the tragedy of this narrative arc, even as you're describing this, I was reminded of something um, that really stood out to me in the book, which is that you, you take on all of these episodes and TV shows um, in the context of, of, of the history of when they are, and also... The sort of, in some ways, the sort of the moral limitations of mm. of the way they were made, whether that was language or the stories. You're not censorious in saying that you know we can't watch this thing anymore because because of the language that was used, language that would never be used today, the the, the f slur or, or mm. other things, which you know was on network television. I'm just curious how you how you approach all these different bits of entertainment. Um, that in some ways are actually shocking with a 2023 understanding. It can be a difficult translation sometimes. Um, as you heard in that, you know, she says, I'm a transvestite, I'm a female impersonator. We don't really use language like that today very much. Um, and like you mentioned, the slur, you know, the, a lot of languages thrown around, fairy and fruit and harder F words uh, are thrown around. Um, and it's it, it is very difficult to contextualize that, and you know, for for a viewer today to understand what they were, what characters at the time were trying to communicate, or so showrunners or writers. Uh, exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, so just to, to fast forward a little bit, th this Beverly character um, later on in the show's run, mm -hmm. um, when when she's more a part of of the family of yeah. of the family of all in the family, um, is is murdered yeah. in, in in a way that it seems is, is very much tied to her identity. And, yeah. and this hits Edith in particular really hard. And she has a, a major crisis of faith yeah. because of it. It makes me wonder why you're focusing on comedy. And and I mean, the, and this was a comedy mm -hmm. um, all in the time. I mean, the point was, among other things, it was, I mean, it was to sell advertising sure. as, a, as a television show, but, but to make people laugh. What do you see as the specific power that comedy has to sneak into our heads? I think it, it's so clear in these Norman Lear shows. Uh, in fact, Norman himself has often described comedy as an intravenous. It's a way to get a message into people while they are laughing. 
And so the comedy makes it so much easier to slip something in. Now, obviously, they didn't approach their shows. You know, Norman and, and Bud Yorkin and his partners didn't approach a show saying, like, how can we change the world? How can we how can we get a message you know, across? Uh, they started with entertaining. They started with being funny. But they also had values and they had ideas and they had things they wanted to express and talk about. Um, Norman, and, and you're saying that if it had been um, – if the – context had been a drama instead of a comedy, it wouldn't necessarily have been as effective in doing that? Well, I think dramas would have uh, and uh, were effective in other ways. Uh, around the same time, there was another really groundbreaking drama. Uh, it was a made-for-TV movie called um, That Certain Summer uh, with Martin Sheen and Hal Holbrook and um, uh, some other folks. Uh, so, and, and that was a drama. It was about a gay man and his partner and his child from a previous marriage. And again, I think that was a really effective way to tackle some pretty serious issues. Issues. Uh, so I'm not saying like comedy is the only way to talk about stuff, but uh, when you want to ease people into a topic, laughter is such a great way to do it. It gets your guard down and also it helps an audience develop a familiarity and a, and a closeness with characters. You know, when I watch The Golden Girls, I feel like I'm hanging out with my friends. Hmm. And I know I've never met these people. They don't even exist. They're just characters. <laughs> but it feels – they feel like people I know and um, – you know, that developing a relationship, even if it's a fake parasocial relationship, uh, really helps uh, an audience to feel like, oh, I, I like this person on television. I like this fictional character. Well, how can I not like people like that in real life? Hmm. Right around, I think, in, in the middle of the run of All in the Family, there was something a pretty short-lived uh, network decision called Family Viewing Hour, which mm. I had never heard of. Yeah. What was it? Well, it was a big flop is what it was. <laughs> but uh, it, I think folks went in with some good intentions. And television had been getting a lot more daring over the last few years from, you know, in the early 70s. And there was a point at which I, I think it actually it, it did cross a line. Um, and there were some broadcasts that were shockingly violent. Uh, there was, you know, this was in, I think, like at 8 or 8.30. Uh, there was a made-for-TV movie uh, that featured a very graphic sexual assault. And that had really um, – there had been a lot of simmering discomfort with how daring television had gotten. And this one was so far over the line that the networks could see that there was a threat of government censorship on the horizon. I have to say, when I, I'd never heard of, of that movie before, but when I read the depiction of it in your book, I, I don't think that that would be on network television at 8 p.m. or 9 or 10 p.m. today. Yeah, no. It's so some, something really was happening on, on TV. Boundaries are being pushed in a way that engendered a, a big pushback. Yeah. And, uh, you know, on one hand, I think it's good that there was sort of a laboratory on television because for many years there had been a production code that essentially mirrored film production uh, rules that you couldn't have um, – there was a lot of kind of content that you couldn't have on television and it was very restrictive. And when that started to evaporate and go away, I think it's good that television experimented because you did get great depictions of people that you hadn't seen before. Fantastic. Um and, you know, sometimes it takes a few missteps to figure out where the boundaries are. So then – so the family viewing hour, the idea mm. was between uh, – until 9 p.m., there's you, – you can't have certain kind of content which is, quote, unquote, you know, not right mm -hmm. for, for – 
for families, for, for young audience members. But what was included in in that category of not being right? Well, you hit on the problem with it is nobody really knew. So they said, we, we don't want sex and violence. Well, that sounds like a nice idea. But as soon as you start to talk about it, what does that actually mean? Um, I found a great interview with uh, Cher, of all people, complaining about how it affected the Sonny and Cher show. And she just looks so put out and pouty and she says to the camera they won't let us say horny or you know so um you know they classic couldn't... 1970s word <laughs> yeah. so yeah you also was... noted that that um at times shows had to move around in a different time slots depending on the content of their particular episode so it yeah. would be 8 p.m one Tuesday and then 9 p.m. a couple two days later? Yeah. So, you know, uh-oh, this episode has the word hell in it, so we got to move it back an hour. Hmm. And that made things particularly complicated and ridiculous in um, Central and Mountain time zones because you had the family viewing hour uh, from uh, 8 to 9 or maybe it was 7 to 8 uh, on the coast – but then the kids in you know one time zone over got the full got the full brunt of the, the the naughty shows, so it was ridiculous. All right, we have to take a break, but there's a lot more to get to because we're still in the late '70s, mm-hmm. and we're going to zoom forward into the '80s and '90s. And today, with my guest Matt Baum, a podcaster and YouTuber, his book is called "Hi Honey, I'm Homo." We'll be back after a short break. From the Gert Boyle Studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. If you are just tuning in, we're talking today with a Seattle-based writer, video maker, and podcaster, Matt Baum. His new book is called Hi Honey, I'm Homo. It explores how sitcoms have advanced LGBTQ rights by embracing queer culture, sometimes overtly and sometimes in more hidden ways. You have a chapter about a show that created a lot of controversy before it even aired, uh, and controversy from conservative groups and from what we now call queer activists. Um, what were they worried about in terms of soap from the two different sides? Yeah. So the summer before soap went to air, uh, there was a Newsweek article about how filthy this show was going to be, and it was going to have priests having sex, and uh, there was going to be a gay character. And, uh, when conservatives found out about it, they were furious that television was going to air something that they had heard was so dirty. Now, nobody had seen this show. Was that when I read that? I was curious if that was um, a, a conscious decision on the part of the studio to build excitement, or if if it really maybe this is just the cynic in me, or if if that article came out of nowhere and was seen as problematic by the studios because it's probably not a bad thing for people to be talking about a show that hasn't aired yet unless they want to firebomb you. Yeah. As far as I know, it was actually the result of a preview that critics got. So I think the network did want people to see what they were working on, um, but I don't think they could have anticipated just how (laughs) excited people were going to get. So the conservatives furious about something so dirty and then gay activists who saw, I think, you know, wisely saw that there was a show coming with a gay character and they were like, oh no, not this again. Because so many shows, there have been some good ones, but there have been a lot of bad ones. And so I think there was a lot of anxiety about um, how negative the depiction had the potential to be. How much power did um, did did queer activists have at that point um, to actually have their voices not just heard but but paid attention to when we're talking about you know the highest levels of studio executives? 
This is such a fascinating time for queer media organizing. There was no GLAAD, uh, which we now we have today, an organization that will work directly with studios. Uh, at the time, you had a bunch of very scrappy activists uh, working largely independently on either coast. Um, <clears throat> and they were in part in communication with people who were on the inside. So uh, there were people inside the, the entertainment industry who would sometimes leak scripts and tell people, who tell the activists, hey, here's what's coming, just so you guys know. Um, and you had a few very prominent activists who would get the attention of uh, network executives uh, by writing angry letters and making angry phone calls. And sometimes if they weren't being listened to, they would take things a little bit further and would invade network offices and hold sit-ins and they would commandeer corporate offices until they were until they were paid attention to. With their families, you note. Yeah, yeah. They would bring their kids sometimes. And there was, this, um, I mean, it's a very savvy media move uh, for television cameras to be right there and capturing these kids, like calling out for their mothers as uh, these great lesbian activists are taking over NBC headquarters in Manhattan. What was the conceit of the sitcom Soap? It was essentially a parody of soap operas. And this was coming on the heels of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, which was another Norman Lear show that, that was kind of the same idea. Soap was going to be a network comedy that took the tropes of, sit of soap operas, which were super popular at the time, uh, and spun it into a comedy and uh, was daring about it. Uh, it was written by Susan Harris, who had created uh, Faye. She had done the abortion episode of Maud, and she had the Golden Girls on the horizon for her. Hmm. Um, can you tell us about the character Jody? Yeah. So Jody was played by Billy Crystal, who's then a mostly unknown uh, comedian. And at first, he's a kind of confusing character because he falls into a, a, a problem of the time of not really understanding the difference between uh, orient sexual orientation, gender identity. He's sometimes gay. He's sometimes trans. Maybe he's both. It's very hard to say. Uh, this is a character who expresses an interest in getting what he calls a sex change operation. Again, language we don't really use today, but he's going to get a sex change operation so that he can marry his boyfriend. Sometimes he says he's always felt like a woman. Sometimes he says he's just doing it for the, for the sake of the marriage. But then very quickly, what was going on behind the scenes is Billy Crystal felt dissatisfied with that portrayal. And he went to Susan Harris and said, could we make this character a little more consistent and deep? And over the course of the series, uh, he become, Jody becomes an amazing person. He comes out very bravely. He co-parents as a gay man. Uh, he wins a custody battle. Uh, he is unabashedly himself uh, in, in a way and, and bold about it in a way that you just really had not seen at that point. What? How do you see the the parenting arc there, the the, the fatherhood arc as? Um meshing with the times I and mean, what what was going on in terms of the the politics of parenting mm. when the show was showing his arc so at the time it was a it was a pretty bad time for queer parents um generally they would never win a custody battle if uh, there was some dispute about, uh, you know, either from a previous marriage or something like that. Um, basically, zero percent of the time would a judge side with a someone who they felt was unsuitable to take care of a child uh, because they had a same sex partner. But just around the time that Jody on the show wins his custody battle against uh, his a woman that he hooked up with and had a baby with, uh, they never use the word bisexual to describe the character, although that certainly seems to be the way that he conducts himself anyway. So he has a baby with this woman and um, is, is really fighting for custody of his child. 
In real life, a very similar uh, case was working its way through the court. These two women had both left their husbands. Uh, they had fallen in love with each other. They had kids. They wanted custody of their kids. The husbands didn't want that. A lowered court judge had ruled that the women could have custody of the kids, but only if they separated. And uh, they appealed and it worked its way up and they, they won. It was one of the first high profile cases where uh, lesbian parents were same sex, uh, same sex couple was allowed custody of children. Hmm. Uh, and it, it, it coincides almost exactly with this episode of Soap. Hmm. You, so you grew up in the 1990s, mm -hmm. long after the show originally aired. But syndication is actually, it seems like it's a huge part, reruns yeah. are a huge part of the power of these shows to, to reverberate decades later. Yeah. What did soap in particular mean to you when you were growing up? This was one of the shows that, it was one of the first that really showed me a queer character, that showed me a gay character, uh, or a character that I read as gay, because Jody is, you know, a bit of a cipher that a lot of people can read in ways that they want. But it was airing on Comedy Central at the time. And uh, I remember being attracted to the show initially because it was just so funny. And then the more I saw of Jody, the more I realized, oh, there's a whole community of people out there like me. I'm not alone. Uh, not only can being gay be, you know, can I find others like me, but it can be, it can be great. I can enjoy it. Hmm. Uh, I can be confident and powerful. And I mean, and this character is cute. Uh, so suddenly gay seemed, yeah, really, it <laughs> do, seemed good. Do you remember... Being aware of the oldness of the show, I mean, like if you were, say, a 15-year-old and you were watching a show that, that had been made 15 years earlier, you know, in the, in the late 70s, I'm wondering if that itself had an impact on you as well. There were certain things about it, like the, I don't know, the width of the lapels that certainly seemed dated. But I think one of the great things about uh, a sitcom that really endures, whether it's On the Family or Maud or Soap or The Golden Girls or whatever, is that, you know, aside from the fashions and the hairstyles and cell phones, uh, it just feels like it could be a story happening today. You know, make a few tweaks to the dialogue, change, update the language a bit. And it, because these are very human stories, well, people haven't changed. Their hair has, but aside from that, the stories, the experiences and relationships that we have, have not. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking right now with Matt Baum. He is the author of the new book, Hi, Honey, I'm Homo. You can see him tonight at 7 p.m. at Powell's in downtown Portland. Let's get into the 80s and, and actually start with real life before we get to um, some of the shows that you wrote about. This is when HIV really emerged as an enormous and, and truly terrifying public health crisis. How did TV shows in particular respond to HIV and AIDS? A couple different ways, but one of the most common was just retreating. Uh, there was a lot of um, putting the head in the sand and not wanting to deal with anything gay because at the moment you mentioned anything that came off as queer, people would be thinking about HIV. Mm -hmm. And um, that, a lot of shows felt that, that was too depressing or too serious or too controversial. And so queer issues kind of backed away a little bit. And there was a, a little bit of a pendulum swing the other way. That having been said, there were a lot of shows that were bold enough to do what, what the federal government was not and actually address this epidemic. So you've got episodes of The Golden Girls. You've got episodes of Designing Women that tackle it head on. And then you've got dramas, um, you know, made for TV movies uh, like A Sudden Frost that, you know, that that actually looked straight in the eye uh, you know, at this disaster and said, um, you know, essentially, if the Reagan administration isn't going to come to to help us, uh, we're going to do what we can as as media makers, as television. And uh, there's a beautiful episode of Designing Women 
where they do more education in the span of 15 or so minutes about HIV than, you know, the, than, than most of the, the federal government had been doing for with its public outreach. Hmm. Let's turn to Golden Girls. You mentioned it mm-hmm. a couple times. It, it looms large still today. And, and on one level, it's even just surprising that a show about four women, and they, they are, you know, white, uh, middle class or, or maybe richer women, but still older women, women in the second half of their lives, that, that it got made at all. Mm. How did it get made? By accident, <laughs> originally. It was a little throw-off joke a year earlier. Um, when Miami Vice was premiering, uh, there was a joke about, well, it's set in Miami and there's a lot of retirees there. Wouldn't it be funny if they, there was a show called Miami Nice that was about life in a retirement community. And uh, people at NBC laughed about that until they suddenly stopped laughing and were like, you know, actually, there might be something there. There might be money to be made. (laughs) (laughs) So they brought in Susan Harris, who had had a few, you know, between she did Soap, she did Benson with Robert Guillaume. uh, And then there were a few less successful shows like Hail to the Chief and She's a Big Girl Now uh, that – didn't really work out. She had always included queer characters in her shows, even the ones that we don't remember that didn't succeed. You're like a human Wikipedia, <laughs> like IMDb in your brain. Yeah, no, it's very funny because I can play this game now where um, somebody mentions any aspect of pop culture and I'm like, it's basically six degrees of, of gay Kevin Bacon where I can just connect it to <laughs> anything queer. So, so back yeah. to Golden Girls. So it was, mm. it was a little bit of a joke, but then then it worked. Let's, let's listen to a clip. Yeah. Um, this is uh, when two two characters, Dorothy and Sophia, um, are discussing Dorothy's friend Jean's sexuality. Mm-hmm. I'm a little nervous about Jean. I mean, she's a very special person. I don't know if she's going to get along with Blanche and Rose. You mean because she's a lesbian? <laughs> she's not a lesbian. I mean, what an absurd thing. How did you know? <laughs> I've known since you two were in college together. She didn't even know in college. How did you know? A mother knows. Uh, do you think I should tell Rose and Blanche? Jean is a nice person. She happens to like girls instead of guys. Some people like cats instead of dogs. Frankly, I'd rather live with a lesbian than a cat. <laughs> Unless a lesbian sheds. That I don't know. I should say that um, since you folks can't see the radio, Sophia is eating. She's on a couch with a big bag of popcorn, and she's just sort of <laughs> stuffing popcorn in her mouth as as she's saying this. How much had changed in the writer's room or in, in sort of behind the scenes between a show like Golden Girls and a show like Bewitched, which was, you know, 20 years earlier? Yeah, well, so on Golden Girls, you had um, writers who were perhaps not out to everyone, but they were out to some people. I spoke to a writer on the show, uh, uh, Stan Zimmerman, uh, who was uh, er- early on in his career on the show. Um, Estelle Getty, who played Sophia, kind of took him aside and said that she would look out for him, uh, that she was, you know, as the star of the show, this is not a small thing, the star of the show says, I, I know that you're gay and I want to look out for you. Hmm. And Estelle Getty's career had really been made by queer stuff. She, she had been on Broadway in Tor Song Trilogy. And uh, so, you know, she, she gave an interview around this time where she said that essentially homosexuals made my career and I'll be grateful for my entire life. And so she was a huge ally. Hmm. And then you've got someone like Jeffrey Dutille who wrote this episode. He was a gay man who was who wrote it on spec. He, he didn't know if the episode would get made, but he wrote it. He sent it in. Happened to have a friend who was producing the show. And they said, this is great. We were looking for a gay episode. We're going to make it. Um, so, I mean, it was just another another planet from where they were 
you know, 20 years earlier. Hmm. Let's skip ahead to the 90s and Friends, which has sort of a, a checkered history, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's fair to say, in terms of, of dealing with with gay characters and, and queer issues. And especially with respect to Chandler, how did the show make jokes about his sexuality? Yeah. So Chandler was a character that early in development, it was raised as a possibility that the character might be gay. And then when they cast Matthew Perry, uh, they just said, well, this is a heterosexual actor and we're, we're not going to go that way. Th- that's the explanation they've given now. I wouldn't be surprised if there was also some network pushback against having a gay lead character. Something well, like- I mean, it seems like a pretty hollow excuse given that there was a long history of straight yes. characters playing <laughs> yes. gay characters. It really does. It really does. So, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a little more resistance than people want to uh, narrativize the, these days. Whatever the case, there was early in the series run um, an episode where they make it clear that he is not gay or they make it harder to read the character as gay. Uh, someone tries to set him up on a date with a man, mis- misunderstanding him, uh, and he protests a lot. And, you know, you could read this as, well, maybe he's protesting too much. But essentially, this was the show's way of saying, no, no, he, he really he really isn't, even if you, you might read him this way. Uh, it's very similar to the Murray character on Mary Tyler Moore. There was a possibility that he might be gay until they they cast Gavin McCloud. And, and so he, he wasn't. But you watch those early episodes of the Mary Tyler Moore show, and um, it is, I think, easier to read Murray as gay than straight. So, you know, something similar happened with uh, Chandler, and the result was a lot of jokes that kind of punched down and, you know, the joke was someone's gay isn't that funny. And that was kind of the extent of it. The show did some good stuff, too. They had a, they had a lesbian wedding, which was very nice. But it wasn't all it wasn't all great. And to their credit, Marta Kaufman and David Crane, the creators of the show, have said they would do some things differently now, now that they know what they know. Hmm. This gets us to Ellen, the Ellen DeGeneres sitcom before her talk show. Um, and she was eventually uh, an openly gay character uh, mm-hmm. on the show and the star of the show, but it didn't start out that way. What was the internal set of discussions like that that finally led to a very, very public TV coming out? Yeah, that was a show that went through a lot of changes trying to find its identity as Ellen herself, the person, was going through a lot of changes trying to confront her identity. Um, In real life, she was in therapy and she was coming to understand how unhappy she was as a celebrity in the closet, as pretty much every celebrity had to be at that time, uh, until she finally said, no, enough is enough. I can't do this anymore. I want to come out and I want my character to come out. Um, and then she had to wait for permission, essentially, from ABC and Disney to say, OK, that's I guess we'll we'll find a way to do that on the show. Um, and basically the show, Ellen had to drag them kicking and screaming to let that character come out. And, you know, for folks who were alive back then and remember, it was a huge deal. I mean, we're, this was a discourse of a duration that we simply do not experience in these fast paced times today. Uh, months. We're talking months, almost a year of media speculation and gossip columns and interviews. And poor Ellen DeGeneres, the person, is going on these interviews on talk shows and she just can't talk about what they're planning to do because it hasn't been approved yet. I mean, imagine not being able to talk about that aspect of your life because you're waiting for Michael Eisner to give a thumbs up to you. You, you actually, you describe what, what seems like it was an amazing 
barely coded interview that Ellen did uh, with Rosie O'Donnell. Can you describe that interview? (laughs) So this is on Rosie O'Donnell's talk show and Ellen comes out and um, her line at the time, because they couldn't really reveal anything about what they were planning, her line at the time was to diffuse and deflect the speculation by saying, oh, well, we're going to either, she would say, we're getting, we're introducing a new character named Les Bian. That was joke number one. And joke number two was, yeah, well, the character's going to figure out that she's Lebanese. And I guess people just misunderstood that. Uh, you know, and she says to Rosie something like, oh, she, you know, she likes Baba Ganoush and she likes Casey Kasem. And Rosie uh, perks up at that and says, you know, I like Casey Kasem, too. Maybe I'm Lebanese. And you can see this, like, spark of naughtiness between these people because they both know what they're talking about. The audience knows what they're, everyone that's, knows. That's the joke is that everybody yes. knows. It's also the absurdity yes. and the sadness of the joke. Yeah, that they can't, you know, and Ellen says, you know, you might be Lebanese. I've always thought that you might be Lebanese. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Why can't we just say what we actually are thinking? Um, and then she did come out. And, and mm-hmm. it was it was a huge moment. Yeah. Can, I mean, can you describe that? And a moment that I think could never exist now for a lot of reasons. But one of them is that there are a lot more channels now. And yeah. we're a lot more atomized. And people can seek out the entertainment that they want. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what, was, what was that evening like for America? I mean, this was a phenomenon like we just do not experience today. 42 million people watched this episode or some portion of the episode. I mean, it's, it was like the Super Bowl uh, it, it, in the way that the Super Bowl isn't even the Super Bowl today. Um, but uh, people packing into bars, people renting auditoriums to show a satellite feed of the show. Uh, you could just hear people cheering out in the streets in New York when she finally said the words, I'm gay. I mean, it was a cultural moment that it was front page news. And I mean, I can't even imagine. Imagine the pressure that a person would feel that that aspect of their life was so important to millions, tens of millions of people. Hmm. And then uh, the show didn't really survive um, that change in the in the in its own narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, but Will and Grace followed soon after. I'm curious what it was like for you when when Will and Grace and then others that have followed that that are really much more not even so far from from tokenizing i mean there was it's more about the centrality and richness of 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 people's lives uh, what was it like when when these were beamed into people's living rooms or even your own family's living rooms mm. I think one of the important things that Will and Grace did for me was it showed me that I have a culture that I didn't know that I had, um, that I belong to something that I didn't know I belonged to. I was around 18, I think, when the show debuted, and um, it was really eye-opening. And, you know, it it presents a pretty limited slice of American gay life, Um, these pretty well-to-do white gay cis men in New York. Um, But it was more than I had seen before. And... It was that for a lot of people. And, you know, people focus on how groundbreaking it was to have all these gay characters at the center of a show. And I think that sometimes um, doesn't give enough credit to what the, the value of having grace. You know, it wasn't just Will and Jack. It was Will and Grace. And having a show that presented a gay man and a straight woman as friends and had them on equal footing and as peers, you know, and close, um, that welcomed a lot of people into that show and made it feel like something for for everyone, and you know, in, in a way that really, um, I think, opened a lot of eyes to kind of what I was saying before about Norman Lear. If I like this person on television, why can't I like them in real life? Hmm. With all of these shows that we're talking about, how much do you think that they were 
leading and pushing society um, or, or some households in places where they, they weren't already? And how much were they just reflecting where we already were? It's really hard to say, but I, I think they're they're really balancing those two things. And it's a great way to look at the the power of those shows, um, that they are telling us stories about ourselves. You know, we look on television and, and or movies or media in general, and we say, hey, oh, that, that's that's kind of me. And that's great. But something else that's great that the that media and television can do is show us how much better we could be. They can show us a better version of ourselves and how we want the world to reflect us in the future. And so, yeah, I, I think shows like that and reality shows and game shows and everywhere that we see people living lives and telling their stories, um, they're all pushing us forward in some way. Hmm. The basic story that, that you're telling in this book is a transition from vilification or erasure to maybe caricature mm-hmm. um, to tokenism to where we are now, which I, I think in a lot of ways is, is a more textured fully realized version of of complex human lives but that that's for gay and lesbian characters where do you think we are for trans characters on tv I think there's still a long way to go. Um, that is a, I guess you could call it, a, you know, one more, it's, it's the final frontier of inclusion. Uh, and, you know, in particular, we don't see enough, I think, um, stories about uh, queer people of color. And that's another area where I think television still has a lot of room to improve. Um, and what that takes is more of what we've seen in the past. You know, we, we, we've been here. We've, we've been in a point where we're like, there's not enough of us. There's not enough of, or there's not enough of our friends or there's not enough of our family or whatever. Uh, we've been here before. There hasn't. It hasn't been enough. It hasn't been good enough. And we know what to do about that. And that is to demand more uh, as fans to say, hey, why don't you have these characters kissing? Or why don't you have a, a black trans character on the show? Or why are you re- leaving a whole group of the population out? So for fans to demand more, sometimes raucously and vocally, and, you know, invading television stations, if that's what it takes, uh, it takes writing letters and it takes, you know, message boards and whatever method it takes. And it takes people on the inside who can recognize in my industry, I am I am, have the potential to do more. Um, all those groups working together using different tactics and asking for more and trying to improve things and also keeping their eye on the ultimate goal, which is liberation hmm. and not being constrained by arbitrary rules. You mentioned that 42 million people um, saw some or, or all of that Ellen episode. That doesn't those numbers don't happen now mm. in in our streaming universe. I mean, but we have gained a ton of of new entertainment options and viewpoints. If you want to seek something out, you can find it. But it's not that you're going to be alone. But but it's not the shared sort of almost universal experience of when there were just three channels and you got what you got. How do you think about that balance of of what has been lost in terms Mm -hmm. of that shared sense and what's been gained in terms of that explosion of diversity? Yeah, we no longer have the phenomenon where an episode airs and we all gather around the next day because we all watch the same thing because we we only had three choices that night. Uh, And on one hand, it's great that now we can have so many diverse things, you know, thinking about like Steven Universe and She-Ra, you know, like animation animation that has queer characters. Um, So we can have like these um, niche shows for niche audiences that we couldn't, that there was just no way that NBC of 1984 was going to have. However, that means that a lot of shows are hard to find. There's so many shows that exist today that I only find out about when people are angry that they were canceled too early. There's just more than you can possibly watch. So yeah, it's, it's it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. And 
I, I think the best news is that we're at a real um, pivot right now for television. We can clearly see the economic model for television right now is not working. Things are going wrong with TV at the moment. Um, and so we have a chance to change the face of that right now. Uh, let's see what happens. Matt Baum, thanks very much. Thank you. Matt Baum is the author of Hi, Honey, I'm Home. And thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. This week, I'm Dave Miller. Have a great weekend. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, and Michael, Kristen, Andrew, and Anna Kern. So much of what we talk about on this show has to do with what's happening right now. But there's a lot of history behind these conversations. OPB's Salmon Wars podcast will give you insights into some of that history. It tells the story of one Yakima Nation family that's been fighting for salmon in the Columbia River across generations. Find Salmon Wars wherever you listen to podcasts.